Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter. So you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. I don't even know when I first started, but you didn't even have a podcast when I first started kind of following your content, Kurt. And uh, I was a brand new Elders Corn president and trying to figure out what to do in my calling. And I was just scouring the internet for ideas and thoughts on how to how to proceed. And since then, I've had several different callings. And each time I have a new calling, that's the first thing I do is I go into your podcast and your blogs and I see, okay, what have other people done? And that's helped me tremendously because I don't have all the answers and I haven't had all those different experiences, but being able to start off on the right foot is, is super powerful. So yeah, I love your content and love everything that you're doing. Hey, this is Kurt Frankum with Leading Saints. I welcome you back to another episode of this phenomenal podcast. Don't I have the best job in the world? <laughs> I mean, this is a lot of fun. I love it. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, uh, come on in, take a seat. Uh, we're glad you're here. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through uh, various methods like this podcast. We have online articles at leadingsaints.org. We do virtual conferences. We've got a newsletter that goes out every Tuesday that you you must not miss. And uh, I'm sure many other things I can't think of right now, but I'm glad you're introduced to the Leading Saints world. Now, this episode is another goodie. I mean, I really try not to have episodes that aren't goodies. Uh, and this is with Norm Heal. He is a former mission president uh, who served in, in Ghana as a mission president. And he tells some phenomenal stories from that time, but he is also an author, lives down in St. George. Uh, I was introduced to him, which I... Uh, <laughs> embarrassingly forget at the beginning of this episode, which you'll probably hear, I forget how I was introduced to Norm because we've had several conversations since we've, we've been introduced and they've just been phenomenal. I've learned so much from him, his perspective. And as we were talking, I thought, you know what, this guy could really help uh, some church leaders out there who are sort of feeling stuck in the midst of this uh, shutdown or in the midst of the pandemic where churches shut down, activities are somewhat shut down. You know, not totally, but it feels that way more than not. And we sort of don't know what to do. We tried the Zoom meeting thing for a while or activities through Zoom or, and it just wasn't jiving, right? And so we need to figure out how to begin to think outside the box, think creatively and uh, establish some things, uh, some habits, some activities, some efforts that are going to uh, motivate the ward and, and keep them focused on, on whatever vision you've established in your organization. And Norm does a phenomenal job at this, really taking us through solid principles that I think you'll appreciate and be able to apply right away. He's also recently, again, we're, we were connected through, did I mention this? We were connected through Cedar Fort, 
because he's writing a book that is called What They Don't Teach You in the MTC. Actually, he already wrote it. It comes out in March and uh, definitely a book to pick up because uh, especially whether you are preparing a missionary or whether you are trying to be a better member of missionary, it's going to be a phenomenal book. And I'm sure there's future content that we can cover with him around that topic. So you're going to love it. Here is my interview with Norm Hill, the author of What They Don't Teach You in the MTC. Today, I'm connected with uh, Norm Hill. How are you, Norm? I'm doing great. Thanks so much, Kurt. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to have you on here. I'm uh, trying to think, uh, how did we originally get connected? Didn't someone connect us? Yes, it's through Cedar Fort. Uh, That's right. They're publishing a book that I've written called What They Don't Teach You at the MTC. That's right. Things that missionaries need to learn that they don't have time to teach at the Missionary Training Center, virtual or actual. Yeah. And you've had uh, some experience teaching your uh, teaching missionaries in your own right. You served as a mission president. Uh, was it in Ghana? Is that right? Correct. It was the Ghana Accra West Mission 2013 to 2016. During that time period, because of the Ebola crisis, when full-time missionaries were withdrawn from Sierra Leone, I was also asked to preside over the Sierra Leone Freetown Mission. So I got two missions for the price of one. <laughs> Nice. Wow. What a responsibility. And uh, I'm sure there's uh, many stories that uh, you could tell. I mean, I could fill its own podcast, several episodes, I'm sure. I hope I'll at least share a couple now and maybe you'll cool. invite me back later. Awesome. No, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. So we got connected through that and, and I'm intrigued by the premise of this book. And uh, and remind me, is it out yet or when does it come out? March 9th is the release date. So okay. it's not out. March 9th, 2021, it'll be out. And the idea is, again, there's a lot of things that are important to missionaries that don't get taught at the MTC. They just don't have enough time. They have to focus on a few priorities. And so I've taken things that are part of Preach My Gospel and expanded them, provided application, shown how, in very ordinary ways, missionaries can become extraordinary. Yeah, I love it. And so give us an example of maybe uh, that application process or how to get from, a, you know, an idea to an application to, to help missionaries. And then I, then I want to jump into a discussion of sort of a more broader approach of how leaders in general can do that. Good. So I'm going to give a couple of different examples, if that's okay. Yeah, great. Um, so one is in Preach My Gospel, there's a description of a lot of skills and abilities, but they're not identified always in a very cohesive way. Uh, one of the things I did when I worked, I worked for ExxonMobil for 25 years and then six years for Reliant Energy as the vice president of human resources. And we would identify competencies for jobs and then train people to be more effective in those competencies, those skills and abilities. So one of the things I did is extract from Preach My Gospel the competencies, some that are well-identified, some that are more subtle and nuanced, identified them, put them on cards, and asked missionaries to do a self-assessment of how good they were on those particular competencies, and, and then designed, helped them design their own individualized, customized training program to get better at them. So that's uh, available from Preach My Gospel, but it's not explicit. That's one mm -hmm. example. Gotcha. A second example is specifically around how we can serve members. A lot of times missionaries are looking for big service opportunities when it's little things that can make a difference. Every missionary likes to have dinner appointments. 
but in places no, like, <laughs> yeah, everybody does. doesn't matter where you serve. Yeah. In places like Ghana, but it was also true in Texas. I was a counselor in the Texas Houston Mission Presidency. Members, sometimes it can be economically challenging. You know, people in Ghana don't have a lot and to have dinner for the missionaries can be a burden. So we developed an award in our mission leader council, what we called reverse dinner appointments, reverse DAs, where we took dinner to members as opposed to always expecting them to come to us. And sometimes it wasn't always dinner. Sometimes it was just banana bread. Members appreciated that so very much. I have a grandson who's serving in the Dominican Republic, reassigned to Arizona now. And in both Arizona and in the DR, he took brownies or banana bread to members or investigators. It created a bond between them that was beyond anything that occurred through the individual discussions. So those are, again, that's an example of a way of giving service. A third sort of example that's very relevant today, and I hope to this discussion, is around virtual teaching and virtual contacting. Today, a lot of missionaries are in lockdown. They have, I have a grandson who's in Puerto Rico. They're at phase zero. They can't do normal proselyting. So they do contacting through Facebook or by getting acquainted with people, uh, interest groups on the web. That's so new that it's not taught at the MTC. There's a few kind of ways the missionary committee is trying to bolster that among missionaries, but it's emergent. Missionaries are designing, creating, learning on the fly. And in Ghana, we had what we called rainy day plans, It sometimes can be a monsoon rain for a day or two or three days, sometimes two or three weeks. And missionaries needed to come up with plans when they couldn't go out and do normal proselyting. Those are three examples. Yeah, I love that. It's really helpful. And because I think what I see, and and help me think through this if, if ideas come to mind, but in a, in a general leadership, you know, world in the church, you know, I think everybody thinks, well, what are we doing here? What are we trying to do? And it's like, well, we're, br- we're trying to bring people unto Christ. Okay. But usually that's where it kind of ends. And that, that's, I think what you're talking about with the preach my gospel that has a great, a lot of uh, perspectives and help like that, that here's some things, some focuses and direction to go, but then it's the work that comes after that. I think that you're really good at uh, helping people think through just like in your mission in Ghana, where it's like we want to bring people into Christ, but uh, you know maybe in Texas we could do more, uh, you know, dinner appointments, but that's just not going to work here. So what does that look like? And I think right now during a pandemic with church that's you know mainly shut down, uh, ward councils are coming together and they're thinking, okay, yeah, we had that vision and that idea that we want to bring people into Christ, but the skill set of going past that and saying, okay, now we have an application of how to do that is really sometimes difficult. Am I, am I on the right track here? Absolutely. You know, sometimes we talk about things that are occurring at 50,000 feet and how do we bring them down to 500 feet or five yeah. feet. My stake president, when I was a bishop, Stan Ellis is now a general authority emeritus. And he was very clear about saying, you know, as general authorities, we give general information. That's that's our calling is general authority. It's up to you now as bishops, state presidents, mission presidents, home teachers, ministering brothers and sisters to do the specifics. Take these 
general principles and ideas and apply them. That's what I've tried to do in the book, what they don't teach you at the MTC. I think that's what ward councils, relief society presidencies, elders quorum presidencies are all struggling with today. We have limited ability for personal contact. What's the substitute? And sometimes people feel like, ah, you just can't be as personal when you're teaching virtually or teaching remotely. Well, I don't know. Take a step back. We've listened to general conference virtually and remotely, most of us, most of our lives. Yeah. And yet we're still inspired. So it's not that technology is getting in the way. It's our own mindset that's filtering and blocking us sometimes from being effective in learning through whatever means are available, whether that's the telephone, it's Zoom, it's some kind of socially distant personal contact. I have a friend in Mountain Green, Travis, who told me yesterday, one of the things their Relief Society is doing is having ministering drive-bys. So they'll have either the Elders Quorum Presidency or the Relief Society Presidency phone people in a block and say, we're going to be walking by your neighborhood or driving by your neighborhood Tuesday at six o'clock. Can you come out on the front porch and we'll just, we'll visit, we'll talk, maybe we'll have cookies, but it's a way of having a personal contact that's socially distant. In our own ward here in St. George, we've been trying to go beyond small talk. We have a lot of older people in our ward, and many of them are isolated and lonely. They don't want somebody to just call and say, how are you doing? Hmm. They want to have a meaningful conversation. Uh, I read an article in the New York Times of a recent study that said most people want to do something beyond small talk. It's just breaking the ice to get there. That's the challenge. If somehow we can figure out how to get through that initial barrier, you know, it's like the floodgates open. Yeah. But until that happens, nobody wants to be weird. Nobody wants to say the wrong thing. We don't have an experience with it. It's that initial effort that seems overwhelming. Yeah. And that's where, once you get past that, that's where the true connection is formed, right? It's beautiful. So I want to go back to, you know, you mentioned your, uh, the state president who was later general authority that, cause there, this dynamic I think plays a role in influencing how we do some design thinking or, or process some of this, uh, you know, get, think outside the box because, and I always, I mean, general authorities, they have an impossible job. I, you know, I've, I've been in a state presidency and I remember the visiting authorities coming and, you know, it's sort of intimidating at times. And they're sort of kind of feel like, uh, even though they don't have a clipboard and making notes, you kind of feel like they're sort of walking around checking things off, right? And they might say just this comment that they didn't even think twice about just in passing. And you, you know, like, oh, you should uh, maybe look at this and that. And suddenly it becomes the it becomes the stake theme, you know, just because they said it, because I think we're in a leadership culture, which isn't a bad thing, where we want to do what the brethren want us to do. You know, we want to follow the handbooks, we want to do these things. And so that sort of sometimes halts that creative thinking when we think, ah, I don't know, can we do that? Can we do a drive-by thing? You know, can we get creative in these ways? Or And, and especially missionaries, they're in a tough spot where, they, you know, they're not used to maybe getting more creative because before they had a pretty good structure of what a missionary does, right? So any thoughts on getting past that uh, that creative barrier that sometimes is a false barrier? Yeah, and I think uh, telling the, the stories about 
when somebody did something unusual or creative and that it worked out well mm-hmm. is really helpful. And I have two in, the, in that regard. Cool, let's hear it. So one is how come we all are able to now enjoy air conditioning in our church buildings. It started in 1950, the very first chapel that ever had air conditioning in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Wow! in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. And Clive Larson was the state president. Clive Larson's a very good friend. I lived in New Orleans. He was uh, in our ward. And he worked for Taka Airlines and um, was building this chapel. And of course, the brethren in Salt Lake were, well, why do you need central air conditioning? And he said, have any of you ever been to New Orleans? <laughs> In the summer. Yeah. (laughs) And apparently nobody on the building committee at that point uh, had. And they initially rejected the request for central air conditioning. So Clive went out and got a contractor's license and decided he was going to fund it, build it, put it in and fund it himself. Oh, wow. That's a diligent leader right there. Yeah. He got a call from one of the brethren in Salt Lake when they later heard about it. said, President Larson, we expect many things from you, but this is not one of them. Your request is approved. Oh, nice. Nice. A second uh, example, Elder Gay told this story, uh, Elder Robert Gay, the first one of the seven presidents of the 70, uh, in a Ghana... West Africa Regional Conference. And he was uh, then a mission president in Ghana. And then Elder Uchtdorf visited Ghana. And as they were going around looking at some of the churches, Elder Uchtdorf noticed that there were basketball goals and courts alongside many of them, kind of outside the building, not in the cultural hall. Mm -hmm. And Elder Uchtdorf said to uh, Elder Gay, do Ghanaians play a lot of basketball? In generally, Ghanaians are not real tall. And he said, well, no, exactly. I don't think they do. You know, they play football, soccer, a whole lot more, but not a lot of basketball. Well, how come we have all these basketball courts? And Elder Gay said, well, it's part of the standard plan. <laughs> to which Elder Uchtdorf said, oh, wow. Elder Gay, then again, President Gay. Yeah. Do we always need to follow the standard plan? And then Elder Gay went on to say uh, in his talk, I'm not talking about gospel principles. I'm talking about their applications. Yeah. He used that story as an example for uh, we need to sometimes reach out and customize. We need to figure out what it takes in this particular ward or branch or area and not always follow the standard plan. I think telling those stories are helpful. They give us all some courage to try new things, all within a context, of course. I'm not talking about going outside established boundaries or going outside the fundamental principles described in the handbook, but the kinds of things that the brethren are telling us to focus on people, not programs, to listen to the Spirit of the Lord, to customize for individual people in individual circumstances, and telling stories about when our leaders did that, I think is helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. So I know there's a lot of leaders, you know, I, I think we're well into this uh, pandemic and this, the shutdown and we're sort of used, we're, many have gotten used to the 
board council Zoom meetings and that type of thing. Um, help us understand the design thinking principles, or, or if you were to uh, mentor a, a bishop or a board council on how to effectively start to process, you know, figure out some applications. You mentioned the core, you know, finding those core competencies of the ward or the, the uh, considering the demographics and all these things. Where do we begin so that we can effectively get to some applications that that are actually blessing our members and moving us towards our original visions? Yeah. So design thinking was developed at Stanford University. It's a focus on problem solving and being able to figure out how to solve problems together, that the way that we problem solve makes a huge difference. It starts with empathy and being able to empathize comes about with gathering good information. In the church, we sometimes do surveys on a broad scale. You know, there's, there's an enormous research department in Salt Lake, but not always on a smaller scale. So as a, a, for instance, I think one of the ways to empathize is around teaching and virtual teaching right now. At the back of teaching in the Savior's way that the church produced two years ago, there's a self-assessment questionnaire. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I did in trying to promote better teaching it in my local ward was ask all of the teachers to put what do you think are the of these roughly 20, 25 topical areas that you're really good at? And then what are three things of those 20 to 25 and three things that you feel like you could improve, you could do better at? And we then compiled it, at a, again, on a ward level and said, all right, what are these are areas of emphasis that we need to ourselves train ourselves in? And who can help us the most? Well, people who say that they're good at it. Let's look at what they say they're good at and leverage their personal experience. And sometimes self-identification isn't always the best way. But through this prioritization, we're able to see as a ward where we thought we needed some help in virtual teaching, where we thought we had some skills, and consequently use that as our kind of go-by. A second approach as part of design thinking is to ideate. And sometimes that's brainstorming, but it's brainstorming with some research basis. Having done some of your own data gathering, like this little survey that we did around virtual teaching and, and teaching skills, to be able to brainstorm where do we go with it. A third step then comes to some kind of prototype or figure out uh, how, how can we create something new and then figure out whether it works? You know, it's one thing to say, um, I, I want to connect better through virtual teaching, or I want to be able to use the audiovisual parts of virtual teaching, or to be able to use chat rooms as part of it. It's, it's another to come up with ways of making that really interactive and good. Moving on from prototyping is then measuring somehow your success, what really is working, what isn't, and that willingness to be objective about, all right, some things work better than others, let's figure out what does, and then the last step of 
this design thinking process is to experiment and keep improving. It's that focus on continuous improvement that closes the loop and you go back to then more empathy, gathering information and, and repeating the process. Yeah. And, and that's great because um, this is sort of egging your, your council meetings forward, right? Because, you know, let's go back to the, the first one with empathize and just gathering data. We have a strong tradition in our, in our church and in, in our leadership tradition to uh, rely on inspiration. And we sort of see inspiration as, okay, we go into this room and we, we pray, we sit there, we maybe pass some ideas around, and then this idea will come and, and we'll move forward with it, right? And sure, that happens. I've experienced it in my own uh, experience, but we also have to, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with going out and getting more information. What, what's the old saying that many general authorities say, you know, information leads to inspira- inspiration, right? Like, right? like going out and having a formal way of gathering information. And I know right now, Ward's, you know, they're several months into this pandemic that first they tried some fun things with Zoom and now they're doing Zoom Sunday school and this and that. And maybe it's just sort of stale and they're not sure what to do other than continue the status quo. But to step back and say, hey, what questions could we ask the general body of the ward? You know, and there's easy tools to do this. Google Forms is one. There's You could Google and find others, but there's simple ways of sending out a survey or even, you know, what a great, I'm just thinking of sending out their ministering brothers or sisters and say, hey, you need to go find your families and ask them these three questions and report back, you know, whatever it is, but gathering information is, sounds like a step that's easily missed, but could really alone be, be a game changer. Yeah. It becomes, if you will, its own intervention because hmm. um, you're then able to not only show that you are interested in improving, improving, but you have some some solid information behind it to demonstrate, here's where we ought to be going. Surveys can be helpful. Uh, I think they, they're often overused. Okay. They're a little impersonal. And so what a great way of using ministering brothers and ministering sisters to have a few standard questions, that's the key, and some well-recorded responses. It allows a discussion at its own level between the ministering brother and sister with the family, but it also then allows a ward or a quorum or an auxiliary to say, uh, here's some things that looks like we can really make a difference if we were to do things a little differently. It's all about improvement. In order to improve at some level, you have to say we can be better. That doesn't mean you have to say we're not doing well, but you have to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to go from where I am to some higher level or some higher plane. President Monson used to say about bishops, they need to stand on higher ground so they can lift others up. Well, in the same way, a leader in a quorum or an auxiliary or a teacher in a Sunday school class needs to be able to know specifically where to lift to a higher ground. Where is that higher ground that we ought to be shooting for? Not in a general kind of way, Mm. but kind of what makes a difference for us in our ward or quorum. I think we're really good in the church about doing that for temporal needs. If if a family, someone has lost a job, or if there's a a need for food, some kind of temporal relief, we're pretty good in the church at identifying that and figuring out how to marshal the necessary resources, welfare resources, self-reliance resources to, to address it. 
we're not quite as good in some other areas that are less well-defined, being able to be helpful to somebody who's isolated and, and, and really unsure, or a teenager who feels like uh, the church isn't as relevant in their life as maybe it was once before. And it's those kind of more personal, uh, more one-to-one interactions that become more difficult during the pandemic, but are still available to us. So I visit with a couple of teenagers regularly in our ward, some of whom they honestly, they just humor me. You know, they, (laughs) I know their parents, their, their situation, others were into, Hey, you know, their disappointment in not being able to have uh, sports and athletics in the way that it used to occur. And they've got somebody that they can complain to who's not going to say, eh, just buck up, you yeah. know, who's who's willing to empathize a little bit and understand that disappointment. And I think that's available for all of us during these times. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And, and so I guess that leads my question. My next question is that far as like, when you start to go out to gather information, how do you know you're getting the right information? Like, are there specific questions to ask? Like, like you said, maybe a formal survey isn't the best, but, and then how do you know you're, you're seeking for the right information and then bringing it together in a, you know, a word council setting? Like, do we invite more people? Do we just look at the spreadsheet of the survey data? I mean, how do we make sure we're getting the data that we're looking for? And then what do we do with it once we have it? So my oldest son is a spreadsheet guru, and he would say, it's always a spreadsheet. Whatever the question, the answer is a spreadsheet. Nice. I'm not quite as driven in that same regard. Uh, sometimes it's, it, it takes a little trial and error. Kurt, it, it's not always obvious. I mean, the good news is we have some basic gospel principles. So it's not like anything goes. It's, yes. All right, we have a structure here of gospel principles that help give us some guidance, that put some parameters, some constraints, some borders on. We also have some basic programs that we know are effective, ranging from young women and young men to ministering. Now, how do we maximize those? How do we figure out what works and what doesn't? In these particular times, An easy example really is virtual teaching because everybody's doing it and it's brand new. Mm -hmm. So that's one that you could say, hey, any ward or quorum or auxiliary would benefit from better understanding what does it take to be effective from a virtual teaching point of view? How do you get beyond the superficial into more substantive discussions? And the good news is there's a fair amount of research that's been done on virtual teaching in schools, in universities, in colleges, as well as in high schools. Not just recently, but in uh, the past several years, online training. There are some go-bys that can be extracted by a fairly simple Google search to say, all right, here's a few things that look like we ought to be doing, and here's some things that are interesting that we might consider. Let's have a discussion with ward members, auxiliary members, quorum members about that. The easy answer on what type of questions to be asked is the ought to ask questions that start with what or how. Hmm. What and how are descriptive questions. They allow somebody to explain an answer 
and they're not leading or rhetorical. So avoiding, you know, the other who, what, when, where, why, how, how much, focusing on what and how enables you to more likely get good information that you can then utilize. The second kind of thing after that's gathered is to then look for themes. What are some common themes that seem to emerge without taking on too many different kinds of things? Being able to prioritize is sometimes tough for us because we want to gather everybody in at the same time and not have any either organization or person left out. But frankly, that prioritization is what enables real progress. Without doing it, you know, we're all things to all people. Then I think third, it is bringing to a quorum presidency or a ward council and having them seek that as a place of revelation. Elder Bednar likes to say he would like to get rid of the word meeting when it comes to ward council meeting. He thinks meeting is the wrong word, ought to be banished. It (laughs) makes us too businesslike, too efficiency-oriented. He would use instead ward council as a place of revelation, that we ought to seek revelation. And a good example of that from the Doctrine and Covenants is often repeated story of how we receive the word of wisdom. You know, Emma Smith came to the prophet and said, things have got to change. I don't know how they're working out for you men, but for me, this is a mess. Everybody's smoking and they're using spittoons and sometimes they're hitting and sometimes they're missing. So, you know, for the prophet's point of view and the brethren at that time, they were all fat, dumb and happy. Everything was working out fine. (laughs) It was only from Emma's point of view that she said, there's a problem here. And so the prophet had to reconcile that. And he reconciled that problem that was presented to him by his wife by then going to the Lord and saying, help me with this. You know, what should I, what can be done here? I think that's a good analog. You know, sometimes people are going to have different perspectives. The brethren in this example had a different perspective than Emma. Emma was the one who then brought a problem to the prophet, and the prophet sought inspiration. I think ward councils can do the same thing. Recognize they're going to be difference of opinion. That's one. Two, gather good, accurate information. I mean, Emma was giving reports. Emma was not being judgmental. She was simply saying, let me tell you what's really happening here that you may not be aware of. The prophet then took that good, accurate information, went to the Lord and sought his guidance. Ward councils can do the same thing. Presidencies can do the same thing. Yeah. No, and that's, I love the idea of, or the principle of just seeking out different perspectives, right? Whether they're right or wrong, they're, they're still valid because there's someone else's perspective and they may have a perspective that you're not seeing, right? And so as a ward or leadership group moves in, you know, wanting to to collect information there, they should be asking what, what perspectives are we missing and who has that perspective that maybe we could go talk to. Um, do you have any, any uh, examples maybe from your mission or elsewhere as far as this process, like what it looks like and what information came to the surface, anything like that? You know, I have, I have a couple of different examples in different kind of contexts. Okay. So one of the uh, examples that I'd have is when I was a, uh, mission president in Ghana, I had two districts that reported to me. So in that case, you know, a mission president is kind of like a state president. 
And I met with the brethren to ask them at one point in a meeting with not only the district presidencies of the two districts, but the branch presidents as well. They were relatively close to each other. And and in essence, I, I had a set of questions that I asked them to respond to that were all around, what do you think is the biggest need that we have in our district and what should we do about it? The response came back, I'm going to cut through the chase. What we really need is a hospital here. I was like, wow, what? A hospital? Now, it's true. These were rural areas. This was in the African bush. That was not the answer that I was expecting. <laughs> so I said, you know, there, there's got to be something here. I don't know that we're going to be able to build a hospital. So I spent some time uh, going over with the two district presidencies, some ward and branch statistics. And what jumped out at all of us was the high number of people who were receiving financial assistance on a fairly regular basis, fast offering assistance. Hmm. And some of them were because they had high medical bills. So um, there, there isn't the same health infrastructure in West Africa as there is here. I said, okay, now I understand why they're saying build a hospital because they're seeing these families with high medical bills who are receiving fast offering assistance on a regular basis. I said, what if instead of a hospital, we did something that would help members be more self-sufficient, more self-reliant, especially some of these members who are regularly receiving fast offering assistance? It took a little while But eventually, we were able to receive some funding from what's called member-assisted programs from the church, and we started families with chicken farms. 30 families received 50 laying hens. We had a process that's called micro-franchising. It's another topic for another podcast. (laughs) Think of it as the same as Taco Bell or Burger King. These families weren't expected to do everything. We had a kind of a structure. We bought the chicks. We raised the chicks to uh, laying hens. We had them go through a training program. And these 30 families were able to have a whole different source of income than they had ever had before. Laying hens, sell the eggs. After two years, when I left uh, Ghana, 22 of those 30 families were self-sufficient. They had no longer receiving financial assistance. They were able to pay off, many of them, bills that had lingered for years. So what started from a problem definition, what should we do? Uh, Let's build a hospital. Evolved with better data gathering. Let's look at our statistics to see if there's things that emerge to us while looking at number of elders, attendance at sacrament meeting, who's receiving welfare assistance. It's only as we looked at an array of data that this kind of jump out at us. And then a solution that was that addressed what was below the surface of some of these branch presidents. Hey, we know we have these families who, because of medical bills, are receiving financial assistance. We turned the tables and made them self-sufficient. Let me give a second example. Okay. I often had 
So before I was a mission president in Ghana, I worked for ExxonMobil five years in Nigeria. So I was fairly familiar with West Africa. Hmm. I had a number of visiting authorities who, as they came either to Nigeria, where I served in the state presidency, or in Ghana, say, West Africa is unique in that there are so many more men being baptized than women. It's the only place in the church where we're baptizing a lot more males than females. Why is that? You know, it's like, tell us how you're so successful in baptizing men, young men and older men, and having them be active in the church so that we can learn from it and transport these ideas elsewhere. I said, well, actually, the success is really a failure Hmm. because we're not baptizing women because they can't read. In West Africa, by and large, you have to pass an entrance exam in order to be able to get into high school, and families can't afford to send very many of their children to high school, which is not paid for by the government. Typically, you have to pay tuition to go to high school. And so men learn how to read. Women often don't, despite government slogans. Yeah. (laughs) So as I said, you know, this is really a problem. The problem is not that we're so successful baptizing men. The problem is we're so unsuccessful with women because they can't read. And, you know, in our church, if you can't read, we're always emphasizing, read the scriptures, read the manuals. Um, we're, we're teaching. We're very dependent on literacy. So as in both Obamasu and Asimankasi districts, we, first of all, gathered information on how high was the percentage of active women who couldn't read, uh, e- enormously high. It was above, it was in the range of 60%. The second kind of thing we said is, if we're really going to have women empowered in relief society, young women, what do we need to do? What specifically is going to help us the most? And as a group, we decided the single biggest thing that we could do is literacy training. I eventually wrote an article for the Ensign called Words Can Change Our World about how literacy enormously benefits not only the individual members, but the structure of the church in West Africa, because now women who can read don't have to rely on somebody else to tell them what's in a manual or describe a class or teach their own children. The benefits of reading are, I mean, we all would probably say are probably obvious, but seeing it as fundamental, first of all, to who gets who's attracted to the church, and we did invite uh, investigators to participate as well. Our, Our literacy training was unique in that we tried to address cultural issues as well as language factors. We didn't just teach reading. These also became support groups, in essence. And so I think in those two cases, Kurt, you can see where gathering information made a difference not only in defining a problem, because originally, you know, f- first, the problem definition was people have high medical bills and their solution was get a hospital. Or you guys are so successful in West Africa in baptizing men, what can we learn from it? 
and instead flipping each of those by saying, by gathering good information, by assessing it collectively and collaboratively, and coming up with a solution that nobody had envisioned at the beginning made us tremendously more successful. Man, that is, that's really helpful. They're really good stuff. Move on to the next step. As far as any tips, as far as the, 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 the ideates uh, step, as far as brainstorming things, now you have all this information and you're and it's sort of energizing as a ward council or as a bishop, you think, wow, like I didn't even think this was a problem and that really makes sense now. And any tips on what to do with, with brainstorming or starting to come up with ideas of how to, how to move forward and maybe change some things or, or cause a new direction? Sure. Brainstorming's been around for a long time. The best brainstorming that does transfer into ideate has both a facilitator that's guiding it in a direction and some sideboards. So it's not, sometimes we say in brainstorm, well, everything goes, you know, everything's on the table. And, you know, that's good at a certain level, uh, at a very broad level. You you need to cast your net wide before you start to, to then winnow and figure out um, what might be a, a usable solution. A specific idea that helps a lot in brainstorming is all around how you define the problem. So the term is called reframing. How do I get a different frame of reference? How would somebody else who's not familiar with this look at it in a different way? How might the usual things that we think of suddenly get a little turned on their heads? I like this example. It's from uh, Tom Sawyer. It's when his Aunt Polly asked Tom to go whitewash a fence. And this time, Tom couldn't get out of it. So he's out there with his buckets and his brush. And as Mark Twain writes the story, here comes down the street, Ben, his frenemy, who... You know, he's the last person he'd like to see knowing that Ben is going to give him a hard time. And predictably, Ben does. Hey, Tom, you're going to have to work. You have to whitewash this fence. I'm going off down fishing. And Tom ignores him. Ben says it a little louder. Hey, Tom, you're going to have to work. I'm going to go off fishing. Too bad you can't go with me. It's a beautiful day. And Tom, as Mark Twain writes, it is lazily using his brush and says, what do you mean work? This isn't work. It's not every day that a boy gets a chance to whitewash a fence. <laughs> and then as the story goes, Ben says, what? I think you're right. Give me a chance to whitewash the fence. No, no. And, you know, we're familiar with the story where Ben is now at this point paying Tom in order to whitewash the fence, in order to be able to have this unique experience that a boy doesn't get a chance to do every day. Now, sometimes people say, oh yeah, that's just a story about Tom manipulating things. I don't think so. He defined work as play and other people accepted that definition. I like it when Elder Anderson, Elder uh, Neil Anderson, a couple of years ago, told about a missionary that he met and the missionary said, we ought to stop using the word missionary work. This is missionary fun. Now, my middle son and I have used that phrase when Elder Anderson spoke at 
conference and use that. My phone lit up. Russ said, hey, did he have a copyright uh, from you <laughs> using the word missionary fund? We'd been using it in the Texas-Houston mission, and he, uh, while serving in his mission for years, we have this connotation. I'm going to go back to the story uh-huh. about what constitutes work. And when Tom defined an activity differently as play, others, not only Ben, but others, accepted that definition. It's important in brainstorming, Kurt, how you define a problem. Hmm. And, and so this reframing is, how can I get a different point of view? How would somebody who is from another part of the world or not a member of the church or what would a microbiologist how, how might they approach this problem definition? And getting different problem definitions matter enormously, just as my example of when in West Africa they jumped so quickly to a hospital as a solution. Sometimes we, in fact, there's a clever phrase that the group is called Synectics. They're out of Boston. They teach problem solving. They use the phrase, too often problem solving is a solution in search of a problem. We already have our answer. We're just looking for somebody who will accept it. As opposed to starting from a clean sheet of paper, gathering information, and then saying, what does this mean to us from a variety of different perspectives? Yeah. So that reframing principle, so you've gathered this this uh, information and then you're, ref- you're reframing it uh, depending on what perspectives are in the room or... I guess I don't, I don't make that connection yet. Yeah, so it's, it, it's what are different ways of defining this problem? Okay. Uh, are, there, are there others? So again, a, an, another example, as a company in Houston, we once moved into an old building, the uh, Houston Industries uh, building. It had a really slow elevator. So many, was so slow that people were complaining about it all the time. And so a small group got together to brainstorm, what do we do about it? Too many complaints was the driver. The brainstorming turned into solutions instead of uh, trying to understand it. So somebody said, we need to unblock the stairs. But, you know, this is Houston in the middle of the summer. People aren't going to take the stairs. Somebody else said, we need to put another elevator outside the building, kind of like the peach tree in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Well, that's pretty expensive. Yeah. A third person said, well, let's have some high-speed generators. Uh, so the elevators move faster. Again, pretty expensive. Finally, somebody in the room said, you know, we're defining the problem as slow elevators. What if instead we define the problem as impatient people? Would we come up with different ideas? Would we brainstorm things differently? Gotcha. Okay. And, and, and they did. Eventually, the company put full-length mirrors on every floor next to the elevator And people became so enamored, you know, noticing themselves and combing their hair or straightening their tie. In those few seconds where they were distracted caused them to somehow think that the elevators were faster. The complaints went almost to zero (laughs) because there was something that took people's minds off waiting for the elevator. It's how defining a problem differently reframing, getting a different frame of reference can change your solution. In the same way, 
that I think uh, Elder Uchtdorf was saying to then President Gay, do we always have to follow the standard procedure? And there was a sense that, well, we're putting in basketball courts in Ghana because that's what we do at other places. And suddenly that changed once there was freedom to really consider other options and, and a catalyst and encouragement to do so. Now, at a, an award or branch or local level, I think the example of reverse dinner appointments is a way of saying, what can we do differently to serve others? I know that there's a lot of missionaries who are struggling right now with how to do contacting and what's the best way to do it in a virtual world. And too often we start with, well, let's put our message out there. Let's put as many places as we can what the church is doing and and what it's all about. It's actually President Oaks who said, sometimes people are less interested in our doctrine than they are in the fruits. So rather than starting by talking about the doctrine, maybe we ought to talk more about the fruits. And then he went on to say something to the effect of that apply to their interests. So instead of doctrine, fruits, interest, let's reverse the process, interest, fruits, doctrine. And some missionaries are doing that by, here's a specific uh, example, a missionary sister serving in the Washington state area, is a musician, a jazz musician. And she went on jazz websites in her area, found some that were in the city in which she lived, and started talking about, hey, I'm, I played jazz, both uh, clarinet and, and piano, and I'm a, here as a missionary, but I've got spare time and you know, what are you guys doing? Tell me the kind of things you're doing. And she started conversations much the same way that we might do ordinarily if we were talking to somebody. Only she's doing it online with people who she knows are already interested in jazz because they're part of a jazz website. She's not bringing up jazz to just anybody. She's bringing it up to people who already have that affinity. And as a result of several of those conversations, she's teaching people, some of whom uh, are participating in Zoom Church, is happening in other places as well. I have a grandson who is a cross-country runner and really likes running, and he's trying and teaches Spanish. He's trying to do the same kind of thing with running groups, with Spanish language groups, in the mission where he's serving. It, it's those kinds of ways of applying pragmatically some general principles that maybe aren't common that we don't always approach uh, in the same kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like in this, the, the ideate state stage is that uh, before you start brainstorming about solutions, you have to sort of brainstorm on maybe some reframing. How can we see this problem different? What if it looked this way? Because right now I'm hearing a lot, you know, as I talk with different leaders around the world, there's they're really nervous about apathy, you know, in the church. Everybody's done home church for so long and and they're worried about this, you know, them, them coming back to church, right? And there's obviously some assumptions maybe that they're making there. So how can we reframe that to maybe there's a different way that maybe that's not the problem. Maybe there's something else going on here. 
And so is that is a good way to look at it? You first sort of have to analyze all the ref- different uh, perspectives or reframes that you could do around the what you think is the problem. Yeah, the more you do it, the better. No, it's the old seven blind men of Siam. Uh, oh, yeah. What's this elephant? Well, the elephant's like a trunk of a tree because that's what he's feeling. Or no, it's like a rope because they're feeling the tail. Or no, like a wall because they're feeling the side of the elephant. It's only when groups come together with their different perspectives and try to pool information, are you able to get a better perspective of, in this case, what a problem is and what may be options for doing things differently? I think we're all during this time of individual attention trying to, and the pandemic, trying to figure out how we make that cross connection. You know, what are the ways when we're isolated that we can somehow uh, reach across and do things differently? I've had two experiences um, that I'd like to, to share a little bit. One is in Ghana in 1988 long before I went there, it's known as the freeze, where the government essentially banned all public worship by the church in Ghana. And it started out, no one understood why or what was behind it or how long this would last. It eventually lasted 14 months. Wow. So you can imagine the church had only, the revelation on the priesthood was 1978, the first two senior missionary couples the first baptisms in Ghana were late 1978, early 1979. So only 10 years of formally organized churches. And now the government says, you can't meet. You can't get together in church buildings. They were locked. You can't get together in small groups. In some cases, a wonderful man, Stephen Abu, was put into prison. In other cases, uh, on the Cape Coast, where members were just visiting with each other. They were detained by the police for 48 hours, thinking that they had violated it. So members, without the use of technology in this instance, had to somehow figure out how do we encourage each other? How do we support each other without formal meetings? And they did it a lot by visiting. Now, there's a culture of visiting on the front porch that somewhat uh, occurs in southern parts of the U.S. You know, this idea of we'll meet out on the porch on the rocking chair and we'll visit. <laughs> that that we, we don't have, and I grew up in Utah, I just lived in the South uh, for yeah. 25 years. We don't have that same sort of tradition of uh, sit on the porch and whittle and talk and uh, figure out how we can how we can solve some of the world's problems. They do have that tradition in West Africa. It's a very oral, highly verbal tradition, partially because languages weren't even written down until the last hundred years. But during that 14-month period when the church was banned, most members of the church still came back once the freeze was lifted. And it was because there was just a lot of individual conversations. You know, it wasn't anything magic in that sense, but I think there's something to to learn from it. One of the things that members tried to do, not everywhere, but in places, is to say, okay, at 12 o'clock noon, everybody in your homes, let's use that as the time we're going to study the Book of Mormon and the Bible. 
So they had a common sort of start time and this sense of, all right, our brothers and sisters across Ghana are doing the same thing at this time. They tried to share common scriptures and hymns. Again, it wasn't all that well organized. It was more hit and miss, more episodic. But it was that sense of, you know, we're in this together. We're sharing things even under the radar because we can't meet in person. I think those are markers that we can learn from. What's that equivalent for us today where we can't meet in the same way, but we're still able to use technology and see each other? The second example I'd like to use is uh, in uh, Sierra Leone during Ebola. It, it is a very similar go-by um, because of Ebola, which is highly transmittable, it's easy to catch, and unlike uh, the coronavirus, historically had a very high mortality rate. Um, government banned public meetings at various uh, times. Uh, members of the church occasionally met in homes, but more often than not had to just do things on their own. And we, during that period of time, tried to share success stories with one another of what seemed to be working. What are the kinds of things that somebody else is doing? I hate to use the word best practices that has such a management organization uh-huh. connotation, but it's a nice shorthand phrase. What's somebody else doing that we can learn from? And people felt really disconnected. They, they longed to participate in the church. There's just no substitute for an individual contact. I ask uh, each district president during that period to every day give me the name of one or two people that I could call. You know, I had, I had unlimited minutes and people who are in West Africa, they don't like to call out because it costs them money on their phone. Hmm. But for me, you know, it was no big deal. So I tried to call every day, one or two people. And the names were given to me by the district president. And just visit. I always read a scripture. Going back to small talk, I think people want something deeper than small talk. It just doesn't cut it. And so it was easy for me to have a scripture, share it with them, and then relate something that somebody else had told me in a different in Bow or Freetown, a different part of the country. Those two things, the story spread. People were, hey, I want to get on this uh, call line. I want to hear what's going on. And the informality of sharing best practices, sharing a gospel message, and I'm going to say at some level, concern from someone who was outside the country in this case, all made a big difference. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really helpful. So talk to me about the, this as far as the next step. Once you've maybe got, you have a plan together and you're uh, ready to, to move forward with it, and because and, this, obviously the, the prototyping step sounds like a testing step. Like you have some ideas, let's go see what works and what doesn't. And then you're obviously measuring the results and then experimenting again or readjusting and, and attacking the problem again. So any tips on, how that's done. Cause a lot of times 
it can feel like, again, going back to our tradition in the church, you know, the bishopric comes out with this plan and this is the thing we're going to do. This is the initiative, the program, whatever it is. And, and then it sort of doesn't work, but maybe they don't address it. And so it sort of just fades away, right? <laughs> or, or they're always changing what they're doing and people are getting confused, right? So any tips on, on this process of actually applying a plan that you've come up with? Yeah. So it is about testing and experimenting. And, and you know, we, we like to quote an Alma experiment with the word. Alma also talks about experiment with his goodness. I think if there's a willingness to experiment, it makes a difference. And the key to, of course, any good experiment is to be a good observer and to accurately try to measure its success. Otherwise, all you're doing is sharing anecdotes. It doesn't have to be the rigor of the scientific method, but this idea of being willing to experiment, to a mindset of experimentation, I, I think makes a big difference. In Ghana, I love Proverbs. I think it's a great insight into a language or a country. There's a proverb in a local African language called tree that goes something like this, anama intua obwada. Uh, that's tree, and it means a bird has to leave the nest in order to catch a worm. Hmm. This idea of leave your comfort zone, of get outside the sort of normal and experiment uh, and to test and to try. And I do think, as you describe, sometimes our initiatives are, are sort of pulses. We, we send out a pulse. Yeah. Well, that didn't work. We'll send out another pulse. Well, that yeah. didn't seem to work either. Let's just keep going as opposed to trying to say, all right, what is it that really seemed to work here and what didn't? You know, where can we take grains of things, little nuggets, and apply it somewhere else? And how do we really know what's working and what's not without simply relying upon an anecdote? Uh, Henry Nash Smith said there's only two important questions in life. The first is, how do you know? The second is, so what? If, if we're if we're willing to be patient with the question, how do you know? And to see that as an invitation to learn, not just a way of saying we were successful or not successful. Sometimes we're we're way too eager to make sure that everything goes right. We may polish uh, the answer rather than trying to say, eh, this part worked better than this other part let's keep seem to work and get rid of what didn't and keep going and experiment again. I think it's that willingness to, to do so that, that makes a difference. And ultimately, my guess is that's how we have the current block schedule. You know, at one point in time, different wards around the U.S. experimented with a three-hour block schedule then a two-hour block schedule and uh, as a result of that, we're now in a different framework, all the same gospel principles, but a different delivery mechanism than we've had in the past. Well, that's kind of what the pandemic is forcing us to do as well, is look at how with Zoom, with our home-centered church-supported teaching, how all that works and, and make adjustments. There have been times when the church has offered up a program or an emphasis. Shadow leadership for youth comes to mind. 
Hmm. that you'd say, well, that didn't work quite the way we thought it was going to work. The description about uh, facilitators in teaching in the Savior's way, I think the sense was maybe we emphasized too much discussion and facilitation and not enough uh, instruction and making sure that we're describing the doctrine. So these adjustments are natural and normal, and it's the part of of discovery uh, and that willingness to experiment, to say what's working and what's not, to assess it together without feeling an obligation of everything has to be perfect, everything has to go right, we can be much more objective, allows an organization, a, a branch, a ward council to keep iterating. Yeah. And what I love about this model that you present is that um, I think just by engaging with this model, members of your ward or, or the organization are leading are going to see like, oh, you know, they're gathering information and, oh, now they're coming with ideas. Okay. They're trying some different things. Right. And sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, these, these leadership processes can be very spiritual experiences and, and exciting. And then we, we assume that these aren't just these aren't just ideas that we came up with. These are actually sanctioned by God. And we will now, you know, deliver them using language like we've prayed about this. We, we feel like this is the best way to go. And then when it doesn't, you come back and say, actually, we prayed about it. And this other way is the way to go. Members are starting to think, okay, what exactly is going on behind those doors, right? That it gets just harder to get behind when you, you frame it that way. But when it's like, okay, the word council got together, we prayed about it. Like, we really feel like this might work. It might not. But let's, will you all come together and see if we can have a go at this and see if it makes a difference? And then we're going to reassess. Really important that we get your feedback through this because we're going to be constantly reassessing to really make this process move forward, right? I mean, I guess it's all about framing in that stage as well. Yeah. And the brethren are telling us we have ultimate flexibility around those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, we, we all know where we're going. We understand the church principles. If we're really schooled in the handbook, then it gives us this ability to be creative, to to know where we can push and where we can pull and the constraints that also are there for our protection. So there's a bridge in New Orleans. It's called the Huey Long Bridge. They built the bridge from each side of the river. It's the first uh, bridge in New Orleans across the Mississippi River. They built the bridge from two different sides They don't quite align in the middle. When you get to the middle, you have a zag. Because the two sides, when they built them separately, didn't quite mesh. Sometimes, because we're we're all working together, but from different points of view, there are going to be these mesh points. They're going to need some adjustment at the top. And and from my point of view, that's all good. Yeah, it's still are, a bridge, right? It still works. <laughs> that's right. It still works. People still use it. It was built in 1939. The bridge is still there today. Along the bridge, there's also, importantly, I think for any kind of bridge, there's guardrails. No one would go on a bridge if there were no guardrails. Even if it were wider, it would just be too intimidating. The good news is the handbook gives us those guardrails. Yeah. It says, here's the kind of things you drive across the bridge from New Orleans to West Wego. Good. I'm going to give you these guardrails. 
you know, sometimes you're going to be a, a few mesh points. You're going to have to make some adjustments. Stay uh, within the lanes. Recognize, and nobody ever hits the guardrails. They're psychological as much as they are physical, but they give us the ability to pursue goals, interests, in this case, drive across the bridge that we might otherwise be uh, reluctant to do so. Handbook helps us, gives us guidance. The general principles are iterated time and again by the general authorities. The local specifics that apply to us in our ward, our branch, our quorum, we have all the encouragement that we could imagine to go and do good in our area, applying those principles and to creatively come up with new ideas. Yeah, that's really powerful. Love that. Before we wrap up, I have maybe one or two more questions, but anything we we missed that you wanted to hit on before we we wrap up? I think it was, this has been awesome and really informative and helpful, but anything that you want to make sure we hit on before we wrap up? The only thing I would say is during this uh, time of pandemic, people are looking for, you know, what's the new normal? What's what's going to happen afterwards? And for me, this is a time uh, as well of saying, what are we learning about ourselves that we can take with us? That we don't just see this as a blip on the curve and suddenly things are going to go back to the way they were. But instead, we say, all right, what what can we learn from what's happened here that we make sure we apply? President Uchtdorf, Elder Uchtdorf, has emphasized that around missionary service, that you know, some of the things we're doing with electronic proselyting, we should have been doing all the way, all along. And after the pandemic, we're going to keep doing. Now he hasn't articulated, here's a laundry list of what those things are. It's more of a direction. I love that, that sense of here's some things that we're going to take with us. I think there's plenty of opportunities for us to do that, to, to say it's all about personal connections. You know, when the Savior appeared on the American continent to uh, the people at Zarahemla, they came up one by one. And it was that one by one attention. I, I think there's about a half a dozen times in the Book of Mormon that the term one by one is used. That individuality is what it's all about. There's no substitute. And, and that can be done very well using social distance, using uh, Zoom, using phone calls, if we also see those technology devices as a way of getting past uh, ordinary superficial discussions, finding out what people's interests are. You know, there's a saying going around, everybody has a story. And it'll break your heart if you knew all of what that story was about. Somehow in the church, we are all desirous of understanding those stories and healing broken hearts. Ultimately, that's what the atonement does for us. As saviors on Mount Zion, we can be instruments in the Lord's hands if we will find the ways to get past the superficialities and engage on a level that allows people to be vulnerable, to know that we're going to respect the trust that they place in us, and that by doing so, we can go marching arm in arm together homeward to our Heavenly Father.
I love that. I love that. Well, Norm, where would you send people? I assume uh, any online bookstore will uh, will have your your materials. But uh, if people want to know more about your your writings and and more about you, where would you send them? Yeah. So Cedar Fort uh, is publishing what they don't teach you at the MTC March 9th. Uh, there are pre-publication orders that you can already place by going to Cedar Fort's website and uh, request a pre-order copy of the, the book right now. Hopefully, once it's published and, and available, it'll be at uh, bookstores throughout the Intermountain West and available online as well. Awesome. I'm excited to uh, dive in and, and, and read it. Last question I have for you, Norm, is as you reflect on your time as a leader in the, the restored gospel, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and any good leader is also a good follower. In any organization, there's no one who's not a follower. Even a CEO of an organization or the prophet in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're obviously followers of the Savior. What being a follower means is sometimes putting aside your own personal interests, uh, putting aside some of the things that uh, we might do individually if we were in a different role, if we were in a flipped role, and instead give our best efforts to who's ever in charge. Uh, Gandhi had a theory about leadership, and he described it as similar to being a bus driver. Uh, He said, if you get on a bus, let's say you're in Salt Lake City and you want to go to Chicago, as long as you're on the the driver is heading sort of northeast, everybody's okay. If suddenly the driver says, no, we're we're heading south, they're either going to get off the bus or they're going to throw the driver off the bus. So his perspective was... Yeah, any good leader is very much in tune with where the followers are. And the followers and the leader are almost in a symbiotic relationship. It's not one person being in charge and everybody else, like lemmings, falling behind. But it's instead, we're in this together. We're moving forward together in a common way. And I think that um, metaphor that Gandhi had is is a useful one for all of us. This church prospered in the uh, early days of Utah in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s because people were willing, in the case of St. George, when 300 names were read out from the pulpit uh, to go south, they went south and formed the Cotton Mission. And that willingness to follow the prophet to say, okay, I'm, I might prefer to stay here where I already have a farm and orchard, but I'm going to go there. I'm going to do that. Also is the church prospered because of a communitarian effort. Zion Central Mercantile Incorporated was a cooperative. You and I, Sugar, at one point was a cooperative. The cooperative spirit of the church in the early West is what allowed growth and sustainability. I think today, that same sense of we're in this together, we're followers and leaders are two sides of the same coin, we're in a symbiotic relationship, and as we give up some of our own ego 
when we're not in charge and say, okay, this is good enough. I'm going to be on the path. I'm going to help make whatever a leader might identify as a solution. I'm going to make it work by my effort, by my energy, by my support. I think to the extent that we all do that, the church grows. That concludes my interview with Norm Hill. Bless his heart. Thank you, Norm. I uh, really appreciate the the thought, the, the the stories. I mean, those remarkable stories. I could listen to those all day. I think Norm needs his own podcast. All in favor, right? Uh, just telling different uh, stories that he's experienced over the years. It was uh, really a treat to just sit and learn from him. And, uh, you know, I was taking notes. I hope you were. Uh, check out the show notes for various, you know, the main ideas. Maybe go back, review some of these sections. And, and now you have a model to maybe take into your ward council, your elders corn presidency, your relief society presidency, and say, okay, how are we going to go through this? How can we collect ideas, uh, information? And then what sort of ideas can we generate? How can we reframe the problem? And maybe we'll discover that the problem we think is the problem isn't the problem, right? So just really hard-hitting, helpful information. Uh, so thank you, Norm, for doing that. And, you know, I feel like we've we've hit, we've had some great content. Everyone from Dan Duckworth did to Deanna Murphy, now to Norm Hill, of people who've really given you some ideas as far as how to better energize your leadership efforts in the midst of a unique time of the shutdown or a, a halfway shutdown, wherever it is, uh, however it is you're experiencing leadership efforts right now. Who else should we talk to? Or what other questions do you have? What other holdups, hurdles are you facing? Send them our way at leadingsaints.org slash contact. And, uh, you know, we may not have the perfect person to interview, but at least gives us an idea of where we can go uh, and focus on next. And we'll do the legwork and find another person to bring on um, and, you know, talk about it. And hopefully we're not oversaturating you with content around this topic. But uh, and, and the reality is, is any episode in the history of Leading Saints can help you at a time like this, because we always try to stay principle-based and uh, those principles can be applied to whatever situation. So give us your feedback. We'd love to hear it. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.